The Bible defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. That, was, that was written nearly 2,000 years ago in a letter to a group of first century Hebrew Christians who, as we saw in chapter 10 of the letter, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, had left their community, uh, the religious Jewish sect known as the Essenes. They had left their community. They left their religion. They left their homes. They left their possessions. Some had left their families. They left everything they had, everything they had previously anchored their lives upon. And why would they do all of that? Because of their faith in Jesus Christ, which begs the question, why then, after so much sacrifice for the sake of their faith, why in the world does the author of this letter feel the need to define for these same Hebrew Christians what true faith in Christ actually is? It seems a bit strange, doesn't it? And yet, yet he clearly felt it was important enough to devote a lengthy portion of the letter to that very pursuit. Well, it's the same reason that Christians today, even those who have at times sacrificed much for the sake of Christ, still need to be reminded from time to time what it truly means to live your life by faith. Because these Hebrew Christians, despite all they'd sacrificed for their faith up to this point under the pressures of the culture around them they were beginning to lose the confidence they once had in Jesus Christ and in his word in fact if you read uh, Hebrews 11:1 1 in the ancient Greek the word assurance hypostasis in the Greek it can also be defined as confidence so faith the assurance of things hoped for is a confidence in Christ who is our hope, 1 Peter 3.15, and the conviction of things not seen, a conviction concerning the promises that he made to us in his word that have yet to come to fruition. In other words, faith, true faith, is not some kind of uh, blind trust or wishful thinking or a leap in the dark based on the collection of ancient stories about a man who claimed to be God. No, true faith is an absolute confidence in the person of Christ and a profound conviction that his word is true, which, by the way, will absolutely be reflected in how you actually live out your life because your life always reflects your convictions. You may not believe that, but it's true. If you want to understand a person's true convictions, just look at how they live their life. If the claims that you make about faith in Christ don't line up with your actual convictions in life, I'm telling you, your actions will betray you every time because at the end of the day, our lives always reflect our true convictions. In fact, that word, hypostasis, in Hebrews 11.1 1, also means proof. And so when the, when the greatest conviction in your life is your faith in Christ and His Word, there will be proof of that conviction in how you live your life every day. Faith, faith becomes the creed that you live by. The lens that you see everything through, the foundation that all your decisions rest upon, the standard you use to measure every risk that you will ever take for the sake of Christ and his gospel. In short, proof of your faith will be evident in your life. 
because your life always reflects your convictions. If you're absolutely convinced that the same God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ in the first century continues to reveal himself through his word and the work of the Holy Spirit in this century and that that same God will make good on every single promise that he has ever made to his people, then that conviction is going to affect the way that you live. It is inevitable. It will affect how you live. It will affect how you give. It will affect how you love and how you serve and how you sacrifice. In fact, it will touch every single area of your life. And so for the Christian, faith is the linchpin of our lives. Think about it. With, without faith, there's no salvation, Ephesians 2.8. Without faith, there's no way to please God, Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, there's no way for us to live righteously, Romans 14:23. Without faith, there's no way for us to have hope, Romans 15:13. In fact, without faith, there's no way to overcome the world at all, 1 John 5:4. So just to be clear, if you do not have faith in Christ, then you do not have Christ. There's no reality where you have a relationship with Jesus without having faith in Jesus, which sounds obvious, of course, to a room full of churchgoers, and yet I've met a lot of professing Christians, people who claim to have a relationship with Jesus while having absolutely no confidence in Him or conviction concerning His Word whatsoever. And of course, that lack of conviction is reflected in how they live their lives. There, there, uh, there may be a mental assent, an intellectual acknowledgement concerning the veracity, uh, the legitimacy of the claims that he made about himself, which is great, we need that. And yet, that in and of itself, an intellectual acknowledgement of the reliability of the gospel does not alone constitute true faith in Christ which is why it is so very important that we remind ourselves what true faith is because you can believe something about Jesus without believing in Jesus. And honestly, I'm concerned. I'm very concerned that there are many in the American church today who believe a lot about him without actually believing in him, without actually putting their faith in Christ. And again, when there's no uh, true conviction about who he is and what he's promised in his word, the result is reflected in how we live our lives. Now, <clears throat> listen, I'm not talking about legalism, okay? I'm not even talking about being perfect or sinless. As great a hero of the faith as the Apostle Paul was, he clearly struggled with sin in his own life long after his own conversion. Just read Romans 7, 15 through 24. And yet at the same time, there was also a very clear, observable evidence in his life of true convictions concerning his faith in Christ because our lives always reflect our convictions. Which means if there is no clear evidence in your daily life of the faith you claim to have in Christ, then maybe you're not actually living by faith. Or maybe you are a true believer, 
But through time and circumstances, you've begun to lose your confidence in Christ and your conviction of his word. This is why the author of Hebrews was challenging the believers in his church to examine their own faith then. And it is why we should do the same today by asking ourselves the question, am I truly living by faith? Because listen, that is the only life God has called you to live. The Apostle Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. There's no version of living for Jesus that doesn't involve sacrificial giving, loving others unconditionally, forgiving those who don't deserve it, serving those who don't appreciate it, dying to yourself and laying your own life down for the body of Christ, the church, which is the evidence of a life lived by faith in Christ and in his word. And so I'm not asking you today if you're you're perfect. I'm not asking you if you're sinless or have your life all put together. No, I'm asking you if there is observable evidence in your life, as messy as your life might be at times. Is there observable evidence of the confidence that you claim to have in Christ and the conviction that you claim to have in his word? Because whether you realize it or not or believe it or not, your life reflects your convictions. Am I living my life by faith? That is the question for us today. It seems the author of this letter to the Hebrews, which we've been studying for the past several weeks, shared the very same concern for these first century Christians. And so in this 11th chapter of the letter, he goes to great lengths to remind them what true faith in Christ looks like. So let's read it together today and remind ourselves of the same. We'll pick up right where we left off last time. Hebrews 11, we'll begin with the first three verses. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So again, he begins with the definition of true faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and then he goes on in verses 2 and 3 to connect the current people of God, verse 3, with the great heroes of old, these giants of the faith mentioned in verse 2, which he goes on now to describe in more detail. So let's keep reading verses 4 through 7. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith... It is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, commend, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So uh, now the author moves from what faith is theologically in the first three verses to how faith is expressed practically as it is lived out in the everyday lives of everyday people, believe it or not. And in this case, some very famous and some very important people, particularly 
important to these first century Hebrews that the letter was written to who had grown up their entire lives hearing about the stories of people like Cain and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Moses and on and on. So the author goes on to commend the great faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah as pleasing to God. And interestingly, if you read the stories of the Old Testament patriarchs in the Septuagint, uh, it's the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, everywhere that our modern translations today say that these great men of faith walked with God, the Septuagint translates that same phrase as pleased God. So when our translations say, for instance, that Enoch walked with God in Genesis 5.22, and Noah walked with God in Genesis 6.9, and Abraham walked with God in Genesis 17.1, and Isaac walked with God in Genesis 48.15, you get the idea. Those same verses in the Septuagint, instead of saying those men walked with God, it says they pleased God. And so walking with God and pleasing God are actually one in the same, but the author of Hebrews takes it even a step further as he discusses each one of these same men in chapter 11 here by definitively tying the act of pleasing God or walking with God to their faith. In fact, he says without faith, it is impossible to please him or to walk with him. And so clearly by faith, we please God. And look, there is no other way to please him. You, you cannot please God. You cannot walk with him other than by faith. Well, why is that? Because when you walk with God, he's going to tell you to do all sorts of things in your life that you would never do otherwise. Noah constructed an ark, an ark without any physical signs of a flood. Moses, a stuttering introvert, confronted a king and his army demanding that he release his entire slave labor force. Joshua marched around a heavily fortified enemy city for seven days straight blowing trumpets while the enemy soldiers perched high on the walls looked down upon them. Rahab defied her own people by hiding enemy spies in her home. David fought a giant. Peter walked out of prison in the middle of the night. Paul shared the gospel under the constant threat of imprisonment and death. You are not going to walk with God without faith. You cannot because you will never be able to go where he's calling you to go without faith. We're going to talk more about that as we go, but first I just want to address whether or not we're actually living our lives today in ways that are pleasing to God to begin with. Are we actually living by faith? Because it's easy to say that we're walking with Him today because we believe in Jesus Christ and His gospel, but remember where there is faith, there is proof of that faith because your life reflects your convictions. Walking with God is more than an intellectual assent. It is more than just believing in what Jesus said about himself. True faith means you walk with God by acting on his word, not just believing that it's true. And so all you have to do is look at your own life and then ask yourself a simple question. If I stopped believing in Jesus Christ today, would my life look any different next week than it did last week? And if so, what would change? Would anything change? How would I live differently next week without my faith 
than I did last week with it? Or would you get up at the same time and go to the same job and interact with the same people and have the same conversations and participate in the same activities and manage your money and time and energy and talents in the very same ways? In other words, would anyone in your life recognize a profound difference in how you are living every day if you did not have faith in Christ next week? Or would your life look exactly the same as it did last week when you professed faith in Jesus? Look, if the answer is, my life would basically look the same, then it might be time to seriously and sincerely ask yourself if you truly are living your life by faith. Because if you are, God is leading you into places and people and conversations and activities and behaviors with your money and time and energy and talents that you would never in a thousand years be a part of if you had no real faith in him at all, no confidence or conviction in Christ or his word. You see, you cannot please God if you're not walking with him and you will never walk with him if your life is not truly being lived out by faith. Do you honestly think any of those men and women in the Bible would have done the things they did without a radical faith in God? No way. And neither will you. By the way, if your answer is, well, God hasn't called me to a life of radical faith. Well, I'm sorry then, but God hasn't called you at all. Because the only life that God ever calls anyone to is a life of radical faith. When you actually live that way, it is so exceptional to the culture around you that Christians become known for being different. They don't blend in anymore. The church stands out and people flock to it. And yet if you're going to allow God to lead you into that kind of radical living, you must have the confidence that he is who he says he is and the unwavering conviction that he will make good on every single promise in his word. And then you must act on those convictions. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. You see, it all boils down to confidence in him and conviction in his word. When we don't live our lives by faith, it's because we're not honestly convinced that Jesus can and will take care of us. So what do we do? We take care of ourselves instead. Carefully controlling our lives, mitigating risks, avoiding difficulties, refusing too much sacrifice and rejecting too much discomfort because deep down we're afraid of what will happen to us if we follow him where he's trying to lead us. Yes, it can be very unsettling, absolutely, especially at first when you decide to live your life by faith as we'll see as we continue to read. But listen, it's the only way to please God. And it's the only way for you to get to the place where God is trying to lead you. It's what the author was trying to tell these Hebrew Christians who were beginning to lose their confidence and conviction in Jesus Christ and his word. He was saying, don't abandon the life of faith that God has called you to. He's leading you to a better place, but you have to walk with him to get there. Let's keep reading, verses 8 through 16. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So he continues to describe the faithful lives of the patriarchs who walked with God, who pleased God, but now he takes it even a step further. He says that living by faith is not only how we please God, but it is also the only way we will ever be able to obey him. By faith, we obey God. Why? Why do we need faith to obey God? Well, if, if obeying God only meant going places and doing things where the outcome was assured, right, where, where the destination was clear, where the big payoff was guaranteed, well, then we probably wouldn't need faith to obey him at all. But that's not how it works. Abraham was called to leave Haran, his home in Mesopotamia, and travel with his family and belongings well over 500 miles on mountain paths, not knowing where he was going, and yet he obeyed. What God called Sarah to was so inconceivable, she laughed when she first heard it, Genesis 18, 12, and yet she obeyed. Noah was commanded to build a giant boat without a drop of rain in sight, and yet he obeyed. There were promises given to the patriarchs who never saw those promises fulfilled in their lifetimes on earth. They died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and yet they obeyed. You understand, sometimes that's what obeying God looks like. Walking with Him even when you don't know where you're going. Walking with Him even when it seems impossible. Walking with Him even when it means being rejected by this world. That's why you need faith to obey Him. Because it isn't always going to be easy. It was never meant to be. You see, we, we think living by faith, we, we think we're living by faith. We think we're obeying God because we go to church and, and give something in the offering and pray before dinner and, and then we say we love Jesus, but when was the last time you led your family into a great unknown with nothing more to go on than a conviction that God was calling you to go? When's the last time you gave an offering that literally meant you would have to personally do without because it drained your resources? 
When's the last time you agreed to be a part of something impossibly bigger than you simply because that's where God was leading you? When's the last time you were mocked, ridiculed, or your motives questioned by people you care about because walking with God made you look like a fool to the world? Listen, this is what real obedience looks like for Christians. The first century B.C. Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria once wrote of Abraham. Impelled by an oracle calling him to leave his native land and family and paternal home and move to another country, he made eager haste to do so, considering that speed in giving effect to the command was as good as its full accomplishment. In fact, it looked as though he were returning to his homeland from foreign parts and not leaving his homeland for foreign parts. Scholar F.F. F. Bruce says the promise of the inheritance was not in the first instance an incentive to obedience. It was the reward of his obedience. To Abraham, the promise of God was as substantial as its realization. In other words, as far as Abraham was concerned, the reward that he received from God was not found after he obeyed. No, his reward was found in obedience itself. Simply obeying God was enough for Abraham. Why? Because he knew that obedience was pleasing to God and pleasing God was what Abraham wanted more than anything else in this world. I wonder, can we say the same of ourselves today? If you can, then you'll follow God even when you don't know where you're going. You'll give to God even though it costs you deeply. And you'll obey God even when it makes you look like a fool. Missionary author and speaker Elizabeth Elliot once said, God is God. Because he is God, he's worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Is your confidence in Christ and conviction in his word so great that you're willing to obey him no matter what it costs you? That's the question the author is asking as we finish the chapter, verse 17, to the end. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. That is a long list of men and women who lived by faith to the degree they were willing to risk everything they had for God. So God commands Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, his own son, who, by the way, was the hope of God's promise to Abraham being fulfilled, and yet God commands Abraham to kill his own son. And, of course, we know now that God stopped Abraham just before he followed through with that command, but Abraham fully believed he was going to have to kill his own son, as the author of our letter points out that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. In other words, God made Abraham a promise and then he commands Abraham to kill the fulfillment of that same promise. And yet Abraham is so confident in God and so convicted by his word that he doesn't hesitate to carry out the command of God, assuming that God will raise Isaac from the dead after Abraham kills him because he's convinced that God will make good on his promise no matter what it costs Abraham personally. That is the very picture of living by faith. Can we say the same of ourselves today? We look at this example of what Abraham did with Isaac and we're, we're repulsed by the thought of it, offering up your own child to God as a sacrifice. And yet, from about the 6th century B.C. on, the, the Second Temple period, this act of faith by Abraham, what is referred to as the Akedah in Hebrew, or the binding of Isaac in Jewish Haggadic tradition, it was celebrated for centuries as the model of faithfulness and obedience to God that we should all be following. In other words, risking everything for God was seen as the only real standard of a life truly lived by faith. 
Moses chose to be mistreated with God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of a pagan culture. Others went to battle against all odds, putting foreign armies to flight. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins. Can you picture it? Skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and all these, though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised. Why would they do that? Why would they live that way? Because of the profound confidence and conviction, the faith that God had provided something better. And do you understand he expects nothing less from us today? You see, by faith, we risk everything for God. From Abraham to the apostles, if you work your way through Scripture, you will be hard-pressed to find a hero of the faith who didn't risk everything for God at some point in their lives. That's the proof that their faith was more than just a mental ascent. It was more than just believing things about God. There was such a profound conviction and confidence that God would fulfill his promises that they put all of their faith, all of it, in God alone. And as you can see, it was reflected in how they lived their lives. And yet today, listen, today we're so averse to risk We're so averse to risk that it's deemed foolish to embrace it, even though Scripture is clear on the matter. Risk is requisite. It is required if you are to live your life by faith. There's no escaping risk if you're going to live for God. As I've often said, you can have great risk without success, but you cannot have great success without risk. Risk is required to live a life by faith, and yet you won't take risks for Christ if you do not trust him. If you're not ultimately convicted that his word is true, you will not take risks for Christ. Why would you? Really, I think that is the essence of the condition of the church today concerning our aversion to risk. We don't trust all of God's word. If we did, we wouldn't be so resistant to taking risks for the gospel. So instead, we just take the parts of it we like, and then we avoid the rest. But as St. Augustine once said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel that you believe, but yourself. Blaise Pascal said, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Okay, listen. If you're going to live by faith, then you're going to have to accept God's word as true until the conviction of it looms so large in your life that no risk for the sake of it will seem unreasonable. You see, at times... Risk is precisely what living by faith demands. And so the author of the letter, he was essentially asking these first century Christians the same question that we need to ask ourselves today. Am I willing to risk everything for the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel? Because at times living by faith will require nothing less 
Or are there other things in your life that are more sacred to you than your faith in him and in his word? Things that you're not willing to risk for his sake. Your income. Your reputation. Your comfort. Your security. Your way of life. Your life itself. Because if you're going to live by faith, you're going to have to be willing to risk all of that if that is what he calls you to do. Listen, living by, by faith, living by faith is the only life he's ever called anyone to live. So not one of us in here is exempt. There's no version of living by faith that doesn't involve walking with him daily, even when you don't know where that will lead you. There's no version of living by faith that doesn't mean obedience to his word even when you don't know what that will cost you. And there's no version of living by faith that doesn't involve risk even when you cannot see the outcome. And I'm not asking you today if you're perfect. Abraham tried to make God's promise happen on his own by having a child with his servant. Sarah laughed at God's promise because she didn't believe it was possible. Noah was a drunk. Isaac was a liar. Jacob was a cheater. Moses was ruled by his own anger. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was full of fear. Samson was full of pride. And David was full of lust. I'm not asking you if you're perfect. Not one of these heroes of the faith was perfect. And yet notice that not one of them is remembered in God's word for their sin. No, they're commended for their faith. I'm not asking you if you're perfect. I'm asking you if you are so confident in Christ and convicted by his word that you're walking with him daily, obeying his call on your life and willing to risk everything if that's what it takes to see it through. Are you living by faith? Is there observable evidence in your life as messy as your life may be at times? I get it. But is there observable evidence of the confidence that you claim to have in Christ and the conviction that you claim to have in his word? Because if there is, then walking with Christ, radical obedience to his word, and life-altering risks for his glory will be hallmarks of your life. That's what it means to live by faith. Let's pray.